Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, thank you. Uh, so today, I, we're going to jump right in. Today we are uh, continuing uh, a three-week portion of our series that we've been calling NUMA, Understanding the Work of the Spirit. Uh, and over those three weeks, uh, which started last week, we're looking at some of the more controversial uh, and debated topics uh, concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in particular, uh, we're doing this, well, we're doing this because we want to make sure that we give ample time uh, to the Bible's teaching on these issues, especially because um, so often uh, they can be debated topics in uh, Christian communities uh, amongst those who are uh, Bible-believing, faithful Christians. Uh, many take different perspectives on some of these issues, and uh, what we're going to be doing this week and next week is focusing in on uh, specifically the, uh, the biblical teachings around miracles and healing speaking in tongues, prophecy, and spiritual warfare. These are all things that we'll be looking at uh, over these uh, next several weeks. Uh, next week, Pastor Abe is going to be addressing uh, prophecy and words of knowledge. And today, we're gonna be taking a look at what the Bible teaches concerning miracles, healing, and in particular, we're gonna be looking at speaking in tongues. Uh, we're gonna spend actually the majority of our time uh, looking at speaking in tongues in order to give us a really good foundation on how we should understand and approach the other topics uh, that will be coming up not only this week, but also next week. Now, as I've mentioned before, I mentioned this last week, but these are topics that entire uh, Christian denominations have been built around. Uh, faithful Christians seeking to be faithful to what they, they believe God's word teaches, what the Bible teaches. Um, I come from uh, a denomination, one of those denominations, a Pentecostal denomination, uh, where I actually pastored in that denomination for many years. Uh, and so I frame it that way because, just so that you know, I have great affection for the teachings of that tradition, even though today I understand scripture to teach something uh, different than some of their teachings. I do have uh, great affection for uh, the things that they also believe. Uh, and so while today I will, uh, to the best of my ability, present what we believe the Bible says 
I will also caveat it and just say that there are some who take different perspectives. There are good faith debates on some of these issues. Those that are orthodox and faithful interpreters of the Bible may come to differing conclusions. And so what I want to attempt to do today is be clear about where we think some of those open-ended questions might be, uh, but then also try to present what we believe to be very close-ended conclusions. Where we can be open-handed, where we need to be maybe closed-fisted. And I also want to just say, in relation to that, the majority of what I'm going to do today is attempts to give a positive case for what we believe and not a negative case for what we don't believe. In other words, I want to try to present what we are for, not necessarily what we are against, uh, and happy to talk more about that maybe in a, another forum uh, to speak maybe more about what we're against. But I want to, as much as I can, spend time on what we are for. The last thing I'm going to say is that if you were with us last week, you know that we got uh, way more technical uh, than we normally do on a Sunday morning when we were looking at the baptism and uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now today, to be honest, uh, it's going to be similar because my goal today is to try and shoot for some clarity. But that clarity, we want to be robustly biblical. And so in order to be robustly biblical, I need to be a little bit technical. So uh, today, uh, after some encouragements from last week, I've got slides and things that I'm going to try to help us now. If you know me, I'm not usually a slides person, but we've got some slides today just to try to keep us on task. So my encouragement would be to stay with me because ultimately, as I said this last week, though it might feel technical, because our goal is clarity, I actually believe that as we land on what we believe the Bible to actually teach, there's actually uh, beautiful things to discover about the person of God and his work in the world. And so with all of that said, let's consider three of the spiritual gifts list listed in 1 Corinthians 12, healing, miracles, and tongues. And to do so, let's consider it under these headings. Uh, we're going to look at the, the gifts of yesteryear, the gifts of today, and the gifts that are to come. Okay? Yesteryear, today, and to come. And I just want to give you a heads up. I'm going to be spending the vast majority of my time today on tongues. I won't even reference the other two um, until the second, the end of my second point. But I actually think if we get a proper foundation for tongues, it's a little bit easier to understand uh, where we might be able to engage with these other uh, two, healing and miracles. Okay, all that said, that was a lot of preface. Let's jump in. The gifts of yesteryear. So I want to start here. Uh, because we need to consider uh, the charismatic gifts, as they are often called, uh, before we can look at them today, we need to ensure that we have a very clear understanding of what the Bible is actually presenting to us with these gifts uh, in the context of what we're reading. So that at minimum, we can say, and we can affirm, that we want to be about what the Bible teaches on these gifts. Right? So we're going to spend some time looking at how the Bible actually presents these uh, gifts. And so to start, let's just quickly recap what we said last week because there's some consequential implications. If you recall, we saw that on the day of Pentecost, the promised Holy Spirit came, which was this redemptive historical event, we called it, uh, which was the Spirit was poured out on all peoples. Uh, and this is what was called the baptism of the Holy Spirit which, as Jesus promised in Acts 1-8, would be uh, for, it would go from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. That is precisely, as we saw, what happens in the narrative of the book of Acts. 
Uh, I cannot restate all of that, but I definitely would encourage you to go back uh, and listen to that when you're able. But the consequential takeaway is that the unique experiences of the Spirit's power in Acts were a one-time event that occurred for all people, much like the cross and resurrection. That's the nature of the redemptive historical events. In other words, Jesus is not continually crucified and resurrected for every person uh, when they are saved. Rather, that work of Jesus was accomplished once and for all. And the early church, as you could imagine, had a unique experience to that work of Jesus. Right? They saw Jesus die on the cross. They saw him resurrected. They had a different experience with it, and yet that same work applies to us today, though it only happened once. And similarly, the Spirit's baptism was a once and for all work that like the cross and resurrection reverberates today. And we saw at the first experience of the, the spirit baptism, there was wind and there was fire and there were tongues speaking in other tongues. Each of those experience had, experiences had deeply historic roots uh, in the Old Testament, which we considered a little bit last week. Uh, we looked particularly at the wind and the fire, but today, it's that last one that we're going to consider more fully. We're going to look at this idea of speaking in other tongues in the book of Acts. I mean, what exactly are those? What is it? What is it to speak in tongues? Well, let's return to Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost. As part of the celebration of Pentecost, Jewish people uh, came from all over the known world of the day, and many of them at this point in history, did not actually speak Hebrew as their first language. That would not have been uncommon. And so this festival, though it was a Jewish celebration, it was also in many ways a multicultural experience as well. And it's in this context where we see this supernatural phenomenon called speaking in tongues. Now again, what exactly is that? Well, if you remember, and we said that this was a redemptive historical event, an action of God that furthers his plan of redemption for his people, all of which was deeply rooted in how God had already revealed himself in the past. This is what we said about those types of events. The question then becomes, how does tongues, and speaking in tongues, contribute to God's plan of redemption, and where is it exactly rooted in redemptive history? Well, do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? In that story, if you know the story, humanity, with a desire to be its own God, was cursed with division. And that resulted in conflict and alienation amongst the people of earth. And in Genesis 11, let me just read to you the end of that section, in verse, uh, starting in verse 8. It says, So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth, and they, were, uh, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole world. Note that the curse that was there was that the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, they were scattered all over the whole world. They once had a single common language. And now, as a result of their idolatry and rebellion, there was division and alienation. But then what we see throughout, okay, of course, in the Old Testament, though God revealed his purposes to the people of Israel, we also know that God's intention was always to undo the curse and to bless the nations. In fact, the Tower of Babel story is in Genesis 11, but then in the very next chapter, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham. 
And if you remember the covenant promise that God makes with Abraham, one of the things that happens through that promise is that God promises that he will bless the nations. And that that blessing, we know, would ultimately come through Jesus. Now, this is important context. Because now listen to how the story unfolds in Acts 2. Right, I have this up there for you to, to uh, take a look at. Acts 2, starting in verse 6, says this. That when they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongue? And they go on in verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? What a question. What does this mean that we are hearing these languages proclaiming the wonders of God? Well, the tongues in Acts 2, what we're seeing here is clearly actual languages that are intelligible and understood by those who are hearing. They heard the wonders of God being declared in their own tongue, their own language, by those who did not know the language. This in and of itself was a miracle. It would be like you speaking your native tongue and coming out if people that speak Cantonese or Hindi or Swahili or Russian would begin understanding what it is that you were declaring. The power of it was that these tongues were this unifying event that very much represented the Spirit of God at work amongst God's people. And it was a picture of the promise of what God had given to Abraham, which was to bless the nations. The promise made to Abraham here was fulfilled. Acts 2 in these tongues are the, the curse of Babel reversed. It shows that all, all people of God uh, are part of God's covenant people, not just the people of Israel, but all those from every tribe, nation, and tongue, all of those who proclaim uh, and believe in the name of Jesus. It means that God here, we're seeing it in Acts 2, is breaking down the walls of hostility that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 2, the gift of tongues in the book of Acts, was an event that showed the spirit of God's unifying power and the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. But that said, that's what we see in Acts. But then throughout the rest of the New Testament, that's where a lot of debate begins to reside especially in our passage in 1 Corinthians 12. We're now going to get to that particular passage. Let me uh, read for you some key passages that I think will be helpful to make sure that we have in front of us. And they begin, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, particularly starting in verse 10. So Paul points out that different gifts are given to some. And then he says, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still another, the interpretation of tongues. So here, what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, you see Paul saying, listen, not everyone is going to speak in tongues. Now that's important because there are some who would uh, teach that Christians, all Christians, ought to speak in tongues. I will say that we understand the gift differently based on what Paul is saying here, that not everyone will speak in tongues. But then he says, others have a gift of interpretation. What is that exactly? What is that gift? Well, at Pentecost, we're told that everyone understood what was happening in their own tongues. But here in Corinth, there seems to be a need for those tongues 
to now be interpreted. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 5, which I have there uh, for you. Paul goes on to say, a couple chapters later, he said, I would like everyone of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the whole church may be edified. So let me just stop there for a moment. In other words, Paul wants to ensure that everyone is being edified by what's being said, not just those who might understand the language being spoken. But then he continues, and he gives us a clue about the type of tongues being spoken. In verse 9, this is what he says. He says, so it is with you, uh, so it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So, it seems that Paul still, first of all, recognizes that this gift are known languages. Right? He speaks of intelligible words, words that can be understood, that are being proclaimed. And at this point, distinct from Acts, what we saw in the book of Acts, interpretation is key for the edification of the whole body. And since some, uh, as a result, some gifts inevitably will be more edifying to the body because all can understand what's being said. And this is important because in many of these gatherings, this is pretty key, this is how the word of God was being proclaimed. As you might know, the Bible as we understand it, the word of God, was not completed as we have it today. So prophecy and tongues and interpretations were the ways that God was speaking until the biblical canon would eventually be complete. Now from this perspective, what we're seeing is that the New Testament is tongues as untranslated prophecy. And that interpretation being the articulation of that prophecy in a way that all could understand. Now, this is not something I can get into right now. Actually, Pastor Abe is going to take the baton on this one and speak about prophecy next week. But for now, it's at least worth noting that what Paul is addressing here is prophecy. The kind of uh, revelatory prophecy that we understand Scripture to be. This was the kind of thing happening in the early church as a result of the Bible not yet being complete. Now, finally, on this point, I want to very quickly address another way that tongues are often understood. And I really don't have time to fully do it justice, but uh, there is some understanding of tongues, not only as this public uh, proclamation of revelation, but also an understanding of tongues as a personal prayer language. This perspective comes from passages like in Romans 8, which speaks of the Spirit interceding for us when we do not know what to pray. It comes from places like 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul makes a couple of statements in verse 2 and then later on in verses 14 and 15 that seem to describe the reality that when one prays in tongues, because they don't know what they're saying, they're actually speaking to God through their spirit and not their mind, again, because they do not understand uh, the language. And so this, it's, this, it's an idea that uh, speaking in tongues is my direct connection to God. And then in other passages in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, where Paul makes admittedly some obscure statements about the tongues of men and the tongues of angels when he begins speaking uh, about love. 
Now, just a few things I want to note about that. It's worth noting that none of those passages actually explicitly say anything about the gift of tongues or a personal prayer language. But I do also want to just acknowledge that there is a bit of uh, a lack of clarity on how best to understand those, uh, how to interpret some of those passages. There's a wide variety of different Christians who believe in different kinds of things, again, many of whom are faithful Christians attempting to be faithful to interpret, uh, interpreting Scripture. But here's, uh, but where we uh, can be sure that there is clarity is that the Bible, when speaking about tongues, as we understand it, when it does explicitly speak of tongues, it's referring to actual languages being used for the purpose of God's redemptive plan to draw all people together in unity by the power of his spirit. And so we know that to be what the Bible presents. And again, there's some uh, open-ended interpretation about how to understand some other passages. But with all of that said then, what are we to make of the gift, such gifts in modern day? Right? I just spent all this time trying to unpack what happened in yesteryear, but how does this impact us today? Let's consider not just the gifts of yesteryear, but let's also consider the gifts today. First, let me give you some terms that I think might be helpful because I'm going to need to use them. And this is where you get my PowerPoint presentation. Okay. There are two words in particular, in case you are unfamiliar with them, that I want to make sure that you're aware of. The first would be cessationism. And the second would be continuationism. Okay. Let me explain to you what those two words mean in case you don't know. There are some who are called cessationists. And they believe that all the charismatic gifts, uh, particularly speaking in tongues, has ceased. Once the New Testament can canon was established, there was no longer any need for them because now we have the Bible, and so they have all ceased. Now, cessationists rightly have a very high view of the Bible and are adamant that there is no other revelation from God except that which comes through Scripture. God has given us all that we need in His Word, and so we do not need any further revelation. And so for them, if speaking in tongues is unfulfilled prophecy, that is a problem for us today. So at minimum, we should at least just say we can affirm a cessationist's very high view of the Bible. Wherever you might land on these issues, that's a very good thing. But then you've also got continuationists. These are the, uh, those who very much believe that the charismatic gifts continue today. They believe that the Spirit continues to be at work in powerful and supernatural ways, and that we can trust uh, that is the case because we serve a God who does not change. And so whatever it is that the early church experienced, we too should also expect to experience. And continuationists are going to have a very high view of a God who never changes and a God who continues to work in supernatural ways. And to that also we should say yes and amen. We do serve a God that never changes and that works in supernatural ways. So where does that leave us? Because you've got two very different perspectives cessationism and uh, continuationism. Where does that leave us? Well, I want to give you, I'll give you my perspective on some of these very, again, good faith disagreements. I'm happy to entertain other uh, perspectives for sure, but I largely, based on what I believe the Bible teaches, um, often describe myself as a cautious continuist, continuationist, cautious continuationist. Here's what I mean. The spirit continues to be at work in powerful and supernatural ways. And at times, will even work in ways that we see in the early church. This is this the continuationist part of me. But he does so in ways that we have been taught in Scripture 
And to the extent his gifts are used in the ways that he intended them to be used. This is where I get cautious. So we want to have a view of the ongoing work of God working supernaturally, but we want to see that work in the ways that God reveals those gifts and the use of those gifts in his word. And so with that in mind, with the biblical foundation laid, I want to shift, if we can, to explain what that might look like in present day by trying to draw on some direct conclusions based on the biblical foundation that I just tried to lay. And there are three biblical conclusions that I would like to try to make about tongues in the modern day. And then I'm going to give a couple additional thoughts where we will uh, weave in the healing and the miraculous. Uh, so first, here's some things that it seems like the Bible is teaching about the gift of tongues. The first would be this, that when the New Testament refers to speaking in tongues, the writers have in mind actual languages. This was a gift, at minimum, as part of the redemptive historic event of showing the ways that God's spirit was poured out on all peoples. And the languages were the sign of that unity accomplished. Thus the tongues of Acts seem to be actual languages that are in the words of Paul intelligible and not necessarily what um, might be called heavenly speech, but rather these are actual languages. Now admittedly, there are some passages where it's hard to know what exactly is being described but because there are uh, challenging passages where there's a lack of clarity, I do want to emphasize this one point, that it's crucial in biblical interpretation that we always seek to use the clear teachings of the Bible to help us understand the unclear teachings of the Bible. And there are some very clear teachings in the Bible about what the gift of tongues are. And so I do think that those clear teachings of the Bible should help us interpret what might be happening in the unclear passages of the Bible. And so as a result, the New Testament seems to be speaking about actual languages. Biblical tongues are actual languages. The second conclusion, based on our biblical foundation, is that there is no reason to believe that God will never use the gift of tongues in the same way that he did in the book of Acts. Right? There's no reason to necessarily uh, believe that they have completely ceased. In fact, I have heard uh, many stories of missionaries on the mission field or those in missional situations who very much begin proclaiming the word of God in a language they do not understand or they do not know. And given the context of tongues in the book of Acts, I think that makes total sense. That's exactly what we should expect to see with the gift of tongues. So, that said, I do not believe that we must be cessationists who believe that God has ceased to work in these ways, especially in contexts where his word is not readily available. This would make total sense for the gift of tongues to continue today. The third thing to put in front of us is that the modern phenomenon, often called speaking tongues, that's largely grown in pro prominence uh, since the early 20th century, Though a spiritual experience seems to be something distinct from what the Bible means when it refers to speaking in tongues. I recognize this is maybe one of the more debated points. But I say it that way because I don't want to, um, by any means, outright reject the notion of a, of a personal prayer language that allows people to immerse themselves in, a, in an experience with God. But it is important, I think, to make a distinction between that and what the Bible calls and teaches is speaking in other tongues. And for those with additional questions on that point, happy to chat. 
Uh, this is, again, one of the areas where I'm happy to leave things a little bit open-ended, maybe not so close-fisted. But I do think it's important just to clarify that it does seem, based on what the Bible teaches, that there's a distinction. But at minimum, there are several easy conclusions I think that we can make uh, that are more universally accepted about modern speaking in tongues. The first would uh, be this, um, just to make it explicit. This is probably the one time I'm gonna maybe really speak to that which I do not believe instead of trying to make a case for what I do believe. Is I don't believe that the Bible teaches that all Christians will speak in tongues. Or that the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. I mean, as we said last week, you have everything you need for life and godliness the moment you come to faith. There's nothing more. God has given you his spirit. Your, the spirit resides within you, and you have everything you need. So, that's number one. The second thing I would say on this point about modern tongues is I don't believe the Bible teaches that anything, including tongues, should be treated as revelation. God has given us all that we need in his word. And we can trust that all that we need is already in his word. Nothing will come from tongues and interpretation that is not already found in scripture. There's no new revelation in that sense. The Bible is all that we need. The word of God's all we need. The last thing I would say about modern tongues is that I don't believe that God would allow any interpretation or understanding of tongues that would bring division amongst God's people. Since the whole purpose the very point of the gift was to establish unity. Unity. So with all of that said, with those points in mind on tongues, let me now try to weave very quickly the other two gifts. I know this might really seem uh, random. But given all that context, the inclusion of healing and miracles, they do need to be woven in at this point. And it might seem random to throw them in now, but frankly, they are um, a lot less controversial for us in a lot of ways. But here's the bottom line, right? We've already, we've already established that God is a powerful and mighty God, that God still works in uh, supernatural ways, all of which ultimately bring him glory. And so as a result of that, we very much believe, there's no reason to not believe that God absolutely continues to heal, that God absolutely still seeks to do the miraculous. There's no reason to believe otherwise. But like tongues, God will choose when those experiences and those gifts are given, and he will always have a particular purpose for them. With healing, God might very well bring healing, and thanks be to God if he does. We believe that he can, and we pray that he does. But he also might not. And for those that trust him, though we might say thanks be to God in his healing, when we trust him, we can also say, when faced with sickness and death, thanks be to God, because your purposes is are perfect. And so we believe that God can heal, but we don't believe that he's always going to heal. But regardless of which way it might go, thanks be to God, for his purposes are perfect. The other thing I would say is that I want to, um, I think, address finally in this section, I'm trying to do a lot here, but in this section, I also want to address what it means for us to pursue and desire these supernatural gifts and experience of God. And I'll be very honest with you, I feel deeply burdened on this point in particular. Because, frankly, I too desire a deeper, richer experience with God. This is what we considered last week with the filling of the Spirit. God, I want to 
overflow with your spirit. I want you to fill me with your spirit in such a way that it overflows into all aspects of my life to have a very real, tangible experience of your presence with me. Like many of you, I too long for that. But even though there's this longing, again, to come back to what scripture presents to us, the New Testament does warn us against an obsession with signs and wonders, and actually is quite harsh when speaking of those who pursue obsessively signs and wonders. Jesus, in Matthew 12, and Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, actually calls it wickedness. Why? Because often the obsession with signs and wonders is often the result of wanting the gifts of God more than God himself. It's also, it's um, often a sign of not spiritual maturity, but rather immaturity. A vibrant, spirit-filled, faithful Christian life does not require signs and wonders like tongues and healing or the miraculous. There will be times when God works in that way. And thanks be to God when he does. But it's up to him and him alone. And the true mark of growth in faith is not the miraculous. But if you want to know the true uh, mark of growth, it's actually the fruit of the Spirit. So if there's going to be any uh, obsessive pursuit for us in life, let that pursuit be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the mark of a growing faith. Seek, hear me, friends, seek not the gifts of God. Seek the God of the gifts, who may or may not give them, but nonetheless will give himself and will fill us with his spirit, who will give us that overflowing sense of his presence and power with us. Seek not the gifts of God. Seek the God of the gifts. But finally, we cannot leave today without also considering the grand purpose of any of these things, any miraculous experience, including tongues, healing, and miracles. Because there are, there, uh, because all um, of God's purposes, all that God accomplishes, even in the supernatural, is pointing us to something beyond the gift itself. And I want to make sure that we leave today understanding what all of this is ultimately pointing us toward, which leads us finally to the gifts to come. So the gift of tongues, healing, and the miraculous, they are mere signs of something far greater to come. They're all penultimate, pointing to something far superior. I mean, just consider tongues for a moment, speaking in tongues. So we saw at Babel, we saw the visions that come amongst uh, humanity. But in the promise to Abraham, we see a promise that God will bless all peoples, all nations. And on the day of Pentecost, we see the undoing of the curse at Babel. And God's word now goes out to all peoples, across all languages, across all cultures. But all of that is still penultimate to what we see in Revelation 7. Remember the the vision that the Apostle John is given. It's a vision of of a heavenly worship service where a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb. Thanks be to God that it's the work of Jesus and the sending of his spirit that makes that future reality possible. 
all peoples coming together in unity before the throne of God. Consider uh, healing and the miraculous. We see the entrance of sickness and death in the garden with Adam and Eve and the deception of the serpent. But then we also, at the same time, we hear of one who will come and crush the serpent's head. The one of whom Isaiah says that by his wounds we are healed. This one, of course, being Jesus, who comes and conquers sin and death at the resurrection. All of that, though, culminates in, again, that vision of the future to come in Revelation 21, when Jesus returns and he ushers in the fullness of the kingdom of God, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Even healing now is pointing us to the greater fulfillment of what Jesus has accomplished both in, his, in the cross and resurrection, but also the sending of his spirit. Thanks be to God for the work of Jesus that makes that future reality possible. These gifts are pointing us to the experience of being completely unified, completely healed, and where the creation is miraculously renewed. And whatever debates there might be had about the gifts of the Spirit, whatever experiences we may or may not have, whatever else God might be doing, we can be confident that we are all being pointed to the power and mighty hand of God, who through the work of Jesus and the resurrection of the power of the Spirit, is leading us, if we are Christians, to an experience of complete and total renewal and restoration. Supernatural experiences are reminders that this world is not our home. They are reminders that our home is where there is perfect unity across every tribe, nation, and tongue. They are reminders of perfect healing, where death is no more. All of which is ours, Christian, by the work of Jesus and the application of that work by the Spirit. Thanks be to God. And with that said, here's my final plea. To come back to what I said earlier, my encouragement would be seek not the gifts of God, seek the God of the gifts. And if he so chooses to give us the gifts, know that that gift serves as a small glimpse of what he is still accomplishing by the work of his spirit. And if he chooses to not give these gifts, friends know that you are not without, for you have all that you need for life and godliness because the spirit of God lives within you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost that you are a God of great power, great might, that you work in ways that are beyond what we can possibly comprehend. You work in supernatural ways. And Lord, we also acknowledge that you are a God who reveals to us that which you desire us to know and understand. Even though there is much that we cannot understand, we know that there is much that we can as a result of your word that you've graciously given to us. And so, Lord, I, I pray ultimately, above everything else, that we would truly desire you that we would truly desire your word, that we would truly desire to conform our lives to what it is that your word presents to us, that we would not seek your gifts or what you give to us, but that we would seek you and trust that in your wisdom, 
you will decide how best and when best to give these experiences that may be beyond what we can comprehend. But even when you don't, I pray that we would also find full and complete rest in knowing that as a result of what Jesus has done and the presence of your spirit within us, we have all that we need to honor you in our lives and live spirit-filled, vibrant, faithful lives before you. Encourage us with that truth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.